I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. We are going to continue our series on the Ten Commandments, and this morning we're going to deal with the Seventh Commandment as we make our way. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to begin picking up with verse 1 and reading down through, what is it, verse 14, I believe. And as we do this, would you pray this prayer with me? Just repeat it after me. Lord, this is your word to me today. May it be a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Help me to hide this word in my heart that I might not sin against you. May I pray it in, read it through, live it out, and pass it on. Amen. Amen. Beginning here with verse 1. Hear God's word. And God spoke all of these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship at them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor, do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any, nor on it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigners residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving to you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. May God add his blessing to that word. Please be seated. I must admit, I approach this morning's message with fear and trembling as I know that few issues touch people's hearts more personally than issues related to the marriage vows. The seventh commandment is direct and simple. You shall not commit adultery. Now, in today's world, where marriage is seen as little more than a contract, a contract involving two people and the state, then all we are really talking about is something legal and pragmatic. But of course, when we are talking about biblical marriage, we're talking about something entirely more than that. The reality is, we're talking about a covenant between a husband and wife and the Lord. And those issues are much different at a much different level. The Bible has a, an extremely high view of marriage. In fact, marriage is the union, the visible symbol of God's covenant love for his people. God has made promises to his people that he will not break. And so marriage is designed to show people God's faithfulness and how we as a people are to respond in faithfulness. I, I remind you this morning that all of history ends in a wedding. 
But the scriptures demonstrate that when that relationship with God is violated, when we forsake him in any way, it itself is considered to be an act of adultery. The Bible then is not anti-sex. In fact, it sees the sexual union as a holy act with a quality so exquisite that the biblical writers saw it as a picture of the intense intimacy that we can enjoy with God. The truth is, I could spend an entire message on the theology of marriage, and the truth is, I'm, I'm tempted to. There's a lot there. But instead, I would like for this message to be a little bit more practical than that. God wants us to cherish marriage because he wants us to live lives that please him and will give us the most joy, both for ourselves and those around us. God, in his compassion and beauty, has given us certain guidelines how we are to conduct ourselves for the best possible life. And so he tells us, don't commit adultery. Proverbs 6 32 says, but the man who commits adultery lacks judgment. Whoever does so destroys himself. So let's have an open and frank discussion this morning about what this commandment means for our lives, especially as followers of Jesus. Now, to be very obvious, the first thing that comes to mind when we need to think about this commandment is that it prohibits a married person from being involved sexually with anyone other than their spouse. When God created Adam and Eve, he brought them together in the Garden of Eden. And God said these words. He said, for this cause, a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. In fact, that principle was so important that it is uh, repeated some four times just for emphasis in Scripture. And you'll remember that Jesus added a phrase onto the end of that, and he said, what God has joined together, let no one separate. In other words, there is a danger for anyone who would have the audacity to try to separate that union. It's a warning he gives us. And so marriage is meant to be such a special relationship that it requires a lifelong commitment to exclusivity and loyalty. And all through the Bible, it's made clear that intimacy with someone other than your mate, other than your spouse, is abhorrent to the Lord. Adultery in the Old Testament was so just serious problem, it was punishable by death. It is the only, one of the only grounds for divorce in the New Testament. Now, as we think about this uh, commandment, one of the things that you might observe is that the commandment actually falls in between a couple of other interesting commandments. The one on murder, you have that as the sixth commandment. We talked about that last week. And then on the other side of this commandment, you have the one on theft. That will be our topic next Sunday. But it's interesting to me that in the Christian tradition, adultery was in fact thought to be the greatest murder and the greatest theft. Theft because it steals the body from a spouse. Murder because it kills the one flesh mystical union of two people who have promised to be exclusive their entire lives. The reality is something sacred is stolen 
in adultery. The reality is something dies when adultery occurs. And if you have experienced the pain of that act this morning, you know exactly what I'm talking about. In fact, this, this begins to bring up all kinds of, of issues within you. That's why in society throughout history, up until recently, adultery was never thought to simply be a private matter. It was as much a public issue as murder. It was as much a public issue as thief or theft. It, it impacted the community greatly, and therefore, adultery was illegal. It was on the books. You could be arrested and fined for adultery. It was also an intense spiritual issue. It's not a coincidence that our synonym for adultery is infidelity, which, if you think about it, is also a synonym for atheism. An infidel is someone who does not believe in God. An adulterer is someone who lives as if there is no God because that person took vows before God and has lived as if they can ignore God's law and that they will never face his judgment. And so infidelity is a spiritual act of defiance and unbelief. <coughs> Excuse me. So marriage and sexual union is sacred before God and is to be sacred to his people. Sex was to be expressed in a secure environment where there was trust and all inhibition would fade. There was trust and vulnerability and communication. It would be a secure environment. But when those boundaries are violated, we are reduced to a, what a mere mating animal and the marriage relationship becomes a mockery. You see, when you commit adultery, you're not only violating an oath, you're violating another person. And so there's deceit and dishonesty and disloyalty. The marriage is threatened and shattered. The immediate reaction is, how could you deceive me? How could you lie to me? How could you make a mockery of my trust? Over the years, I've counseled many people. And between the death of a spouse and the loss of a marriage due to adultery, let me just tell you, death is easier. Hollywood does a great job of making the easy lifestyle free and wonderful and glamorous, but it's not. It's a, an abhorrent lie. Because adultery causes pain and loss Everybody loses. Everybody is scarred. And God is so good. He wants us to be spared of that pain. And so he wants us to protect our marriages. He wants sex to be a tool for building a relationship, not to be one for destroying it. So he says, if you want to live the right life, if you want to live a life that will bring joy to you, don't commit adultery. But you know, as we think about this, there is another restriction, if you will, covered by this commandment. And this is what is termed in Scripture as fornication. That's an old-fashioned word, perhaps, but it is the sexual involvement of unmarried people. 
Now, that idea comes to us as if I'm an alien from space. When I start talking about this, people think, wow, that's weird. That's really strange. The idea of remaining chaste until one is married is laughed at and considered absurd. I hear young people today in colleges, they talk about body counts when it comes to the, their sexual partners. There is no understanding or appreciation for what happens in that sexual union. There is a casualness on the one-hook-up nights, and the argument goes, well, nobody gets hurt. But listen, premarital sex is forbidden to those who follow Jesus. It's clear in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 6, 8 says simply, flee sexual immorality. And the word for that in the King James is that old word, fornication. That means a relationship between single people. And it goes on to say, all other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Why? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. As, as a person who claims Christ, this is an issue. It's serious, and I need to take it seriously. Now, of course, a lot of people protest. Jeff, it's 2021. Things have changed. Morals have changed. Get with the times. As a pastor, I rejoice when I have a couple come to me who are not living together before marriage. It's so unusual. But I want to remind you that God doesn't judge on the curve. I, I think about remembering when God destroyed the whole world with a flood because he said the thoughts of men were wicked continually and he spared only eight who were righteous. God says, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away. Things will change. Values will change. Morals in a culture may change. But my word never passes away. And so Jesus said in Matthew 15, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. These are the things that defile a person. It's sin, and we have to recognize it as such. Now, I hear single people protesting. Jeff, that is impossible. No. It's just difficult. But it's not impossible. The words I've just quoted are from Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul, who both were what? Single. There have been people, Christian people, in the past who have gone to prison, who have been tortured and even willingly died for their faith in Jesus Christ. Is it really too much for us to be celibate up until marriage? By the way, I, I don't have time to discuss this this morning, but the opportunity is, is that for those who are single, 
you have a grand opportunity to go one to go deeper into your relationship with Christ where you learn to allow him to fulfill your need as a single person and that can be one of the greatest gifts of life if you let it I'm not saying it's easy but I hear people say we know all of that but we just love each other so much Jesus said if you love me keep my commandments and so the question is, who do you love most? Who do you love most? And who knows the most about us and who wants the very best for us? Being married and being unmarried is always an act of faith when it comes to the person who follows Jesus. But there's one other area I can think of that this commandment covers. Jesus elaborates on it in his Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, he said, You have heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Oh, Jesus. Jesus, once again, you expand this idea. You go to the heart of the matter. You go to the mind. Jesus says it isn't just a sin to act out. It is, in fact, a sin to lust so that you deliberately desire to use someone. Lord, help us. Now, I, I want to just say a couple of things here, and I, I, I think this is true. I, I want us to notice that, that, that I, I believe that most people will, when seeing someone, will notice when a member of the opposite sex, for instance, is, is attractive. And that happens on occasion. And I don't think that Jesus here is saying that it's wrong to notice casually, to appreciate a, a pretty face, or even someone's shapely figure, for that matter. I, I don't think that that's what's going on here. What I think is going on here is that Jesus is saying it's that second look, it's that third and fourth look that, that, that changes and morphs into an imagined seduction where it prolongs a fantasy for, for wanting that person and taking that person and using that person. Jesus recognizes that it is in the battle of the mind where the battle of purity is won or lost. So every sin is first acted out in the mind before it's acted out in reality. And so Jesus goes right to the heart. And we have to ask the question this morning, how's my heart today? Now, let's face it, we live in a world where there is so much out there deliberately designed to inflame our lusts. Advertisers know that they can manipulate us and convince us we are missing out. And why would we be satisfied with this when we can have that? Pornography. It's a click away. It's so pervasive. It's mainstream. And it's in the church. And, and here's what happens. We become dull, dulled to what we see, 
dulled to what we really love, dulled, and we find it is not enough, and so one looks to find some greater excitement, greater energy, greater thrill, and that fantasy is acted upon, and lives are destroyed. In the book of Job, Job declared, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully upon a woman. Job had the audacity to make a decision, a commitment. It takes a commitment. And I have to admit, I've not always been as disciplined as I need to be in that area. But God does not want us to deny us the pleasures of life. He instead wants us to have those pleasures be undefiled. And so Jesus goes to the heart of the matter, the heart of the issue. He says, let's talk about your thought life. Where are you there? What do you spend your time and thoughts concerning? Hebrews 13, 4 says, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed be kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. So the question becomes, in this sexually charged and overly permissive society, how as Christians, how do we, as people who say we follow Jesus, how can we be people who have purity in our lives? I want to give you four things to think about and take home with you today. First, I would say this. We must make a commitment every day that Jesus Christ is Lord of our lives. Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, God is faithful to us. And if we're going to be faithful in our relationships, we need to align ourselves with him and daily get in his presence, even moment by moment, be aware of his power and strength. I need him to be the focus of my life. The Bible says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. So, so don't be surprised by the temptation. It is prevalent. It is out there. It is certain. Don't be surprised by that. It's common, in fact. But the Bible says God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That is a promise given in Scripture. If you'll be with him, he will help you overcome. Listen, when we accept Jesus Christ, yes, we accept him as Savior and Lord. And as a Savior, he forgives us our sin. But remember, as Lord, he now has the right to direct your steps. He now has the right to insist and instruct you how to live. And if you claim him as Lord in your life, then you have to let him have sway in this area too. And he says clearly in his word, I want you to live lives that are sexually pure, and I will help you. Some of us don't want his help, and we're failing. But I think of Joseph. I can't help but think of Joseph because, quite frankly, in Scripture, sometimes uh, it's hard to find heroes in this area. But Joseph 
is a slave in Potiphar's household. You remember that time as a young man. He's new to Egypt. He's a slave where he's done well enough, where he's kind of in charge of the household. Potiphar's wife takes notice of him. He's a handsome young man, the Bible says. And then she takes note of him and makes a pass at him. Now, Potiphar's wife, I'm sure, was beautiful. She had power. I'm sure she was seductive. But do you remember Joseph's response? He says to her, after he refuses, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against my God? Joseph was so intimate with God, the other intimacies offered to him, he could say no to. I can't break faith with my God. I love him too much. He is too important to me. And when she tries again, she no holds barred, makes a pass. He runs out of the room. And I'm thinking, now look, it would have been easier and a whole lot more fun for Joseph just to get along and go along. He even ends up in prison because of that moral stand. But along the way, I want to report to you, he found something more than a moment of ecstasy. He found favor with God. Over and over again, when you read the story of Joseph, you read that God was with him. Even in prison, God was with him. God was with him. He was with God, and God was with him. And that, my friends, is worth more than anything you can imagine. God is looking for some distinctive people who will say, I don't care what others are doing. I don't care where the culture is. I can't do this wicked thing and sin against my God. I love him too much, and I know his love for me. I'm going to go with God's help and remain pure. Now, the second thing, I think we need to do after we make a commitment to daily make Jesus Christ our Lord. The second thing we need to do is keep working at our marriages to make them interesting. Years ago, I saw an article. Uh, I think I shared it years ago, actually. Uh, but it was how a husband reacts to a wife's cold during the first seven years of marriage. You may have heard this, but here's the husband and the wife during the seven, stage, seven years of a cold. The first year, the husband says, sugar dumpling, I, I'm worried about you, baby girl. You got a bad sniffle right there, and there's no telling about these things with all the flu going around. I, I, I think maybe you better go to the hospital this afternoon, get a general checkup, get some good rest. I know the food is lousy at the hospital, but I'll make sure that I pick up your favorite. I'll take care of everything. Second year, listen, darling, I, I don't like the sound of that cough at all. I've called Dr. Miller, and I'm going to rush out and pick up some meds, uh, maybe some food, too. You, you, you be a good girl. Go to bed. The third year, maybe you better lie down, honey. Nothing like a little rest when you feel lousy. I'll make you some soup. Where's the soup? Where, where's the pan that heats up the soup? Fourth year. Look, dear, be sensible. After you feed the kids and get the dishes done, you better hit the sack. Fifth year. Why don't you take a couple of aspirin? The sixth year. Well, I just wish you'd gargle or something instead of sitting around and barking like a seal. And the seventh year, 
for Pete's sake, stop sneezing. What are you trying to do? Get me pneumonia or something? No, there's a lot of truth to that, isn't there? When it comes to marriage, we need to be realistic. Listen, marriage is not always the honeymoon, especially the way it's portrayed in Hollywood and whatnot. But, but one of the things that we can do and one of the commitments we can make is uh, understanding that the reason affairs develop is that the marriage relationship begins to break down. Communication deteriorates. Physical intimacy becomes routine. Expressions of care are eliminated if we are so caught up in our work or in our kids or in our hobbies or sports whatever it is we need to figure it out we need to hear God's spirit speak to us right now and say I need to do something about my marriage I need to work on my marriage I turned 52 on Wednesday I told my wife Mary the only gift I wanted from her for my birthday was for her and I to go up and get some passport photos taken just so in case if we ever wanted to, to go somewhere, we could. Just so we'd have that freedom. We can't do that. In fact, what I've suggested, hey, I see this great deal. Why don't we go there? We don't have our passports. That's always the answer. And for me, I just love going places and I'd love to go with Mary. It's just one of those things that I enjoy. Now, of course, Mary's much different. She, she'd just rather stay close to home. And the truth is, we usually compromise. We stay home. Uh, <laughs> but one of these days, I want us to take a trip. You know, I, the, you guys just got back from Scotland. I think that's great, wonderful, bully for you. That, that's really exciting, doing it to, together. We need to, to work at making our marriages interesting and making memories and letting our spouse know we care and love them and haven't forgotten them. Thirdly, let's be alert how affairs begin and bail out early. You see, seldom is it that an affair just suddenly happens and becomes an instantaneous moment of passion. That's not typically for anyone who has a, a moral compass. That's not how this, this works. It is rather a gradual downward spiral. We're vulnerable when things aren't going well at home or at work. We're feeling depressed, where energy is low, and there's a person who just seems to understand and laughs at our jokes and makes us feel encouraged by the contributions we make and we find ourselves just excited being in their presence and so we look for ways to be in their presence more and more and of course we justify it we say well it's just friendship but you rationalize again and again and you appreciate the encouragement you appreciate the conversation you appreciate the connection and before long there's an embrace and before long nothing else matters listen I just want to say if you're in that process right now you see it and you know what I'm talking about for the sake of your spouse for the sake of your marriage for the sake of your family for the sake of your church for the sake of your soul bail out now the scripture says flee sexual immorality. 
But let me give you one last thing to think about. The Bible says the last thing we need to do is to get back up if we've fallen down. Someone needs to hear this today. As I know I'm talking to a group of people, many of whom have broken this commandment. One way or another. In fact, the truth is, is there anybody here who hasn't broken this commandment in their minds? But maybe you have stumbled badly. And maybe you've hurt some people terribly. But you know, it's been said the difference between a successful person and an unsuccessful person is a successful person gets back up one more time then they got knocked down. And I just want to remind you of Jesus today. Jesus wants to lift you up and restore you to a right relationship with him first. He, he will forgive your past sins. He will give you power for the future. The Bible says, though your sins are as scarlet, they will become white as snow. In Christ, he's paid the penalty of your sins. The cross has dealt with it. You see, Christ is in the business of restoration and reconciliation. That's who he is. That's what he wants to do. I'm not going to say it's easy, but he can do it. I think about the fact that one time the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. The law says that she should be stoned, said the Pharisees. What do you say, Jesus? And you remember at that moment, Jesus takes a moment and he begins to write something in the ground. Now, I've always found that fascinating. What was it that he was writing there in the ground? And we don't know. But for me, that image is him just taking a breath. I think he's kind of counting to 10 because he's thinking about their declaration that she has committed adultery. But Jesus knows the hearts of men. He knows all the adultery that has occurred in that circle. He knows their hearts. He knows their minds. I think he's ready to well up with anger. So he takes a moment and he just writes. And what he writes isn't apparently important enough for us to consider ourselves with. But he takes a moment and then he says these words, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. And in that circle, one after another, those Pharisees just begin to kind of back up and slink away. To the point that there's no one else in that circle except for Jesus and this woman. And isn't it ironic, the only one who did not sin, who had not sinned, refuses to cast that stone. I want you to hear that this morning. The grace of Jesus will not cast that stone. The grace of Jesus says, I will take that stone. I will die on that cross. I'll die for you. And he died for her. And he died for me. And he died for you. And then Jesus said, go and sin no more. Can I ask you this morning, are you walking with Jesus? Are you trying to do it alone? 
Are you thinking you're getting away with it? Don't lie to yourself. Is your marriage based on the life and the lordship of Christ? He gives us the direction. He shows us the way. This is the way. But don't try to do it alone. Some of us have made a mess of our marriages. I'm reminded this morning that's why we have a Messiah. And my mess becomes his mess, and that's good news. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, pray that you will speak to our hearts and our conditions. However direction we come at this passage, Lord, I am cognizant of the fact that this brings up a lot of turmoil and emotion. I pray for healing grace. Lord, I pray for those who have been victims of adultery. Maybe a parent, maybe your very own spouse. Lord, I know it is much more prevalent than sometimes we are willing to admit. I also pray, Lord, within this congregation that there are those who have given in to temptation and they're not living a victorious life. And their relationship with you and their relationship with their spouse or even their future spouse is is, uh, in danger. I pray, oh God, that you would bring us back to yourself. You would remind us of what we're missing out on and the cost of sin. Lord, we know that sin messes everything up, but thank you, God, that we do have a Messiah and you can fix any mess we've made. But, oh God, may you have your way today and our hearts be stirred to follow after you. Lord, I want to pray for these young people. I pray, Lord, as they are thrust into a culture that has no regard for your word, where temptation is so prevalent, that, Lord, you would help them to follow after you and put you first. I pray for for men like me and for men in these pews. God, the temptations are so easy and we can forget who we belong to. Lord, forgive us when we've fallen and help us to stand. Help us to pursue holiness. Help us to love you more than anything And out of that love, Lord, teach us to love our spouses. And Father, if there is anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, and they, through the the gentle preaching of your word, have been reminded, have been told, have their eyes opened that they need you as their Savior, would would you allow them, Lord, to say yes to the gift of sins forgiven as they repent of their sin and turn their faith toward you? Lord, have your way today in our church. I pray this in your name.
Amen. And as we sing this morning, as we close, I just want to invite you. I want you to know this altar is open, and I invite you to come for whatever reason. But friend, be bold. Be bold and say, Lord, I need you. I need your help. I need your mercy. I need your power. Don't be ashamed of that. That's where the glory is. That's where the wonder is. It's a humble confession. If we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if you're hurt, if you're suffering and you're just struggling right now and you just need an uplifting word of encouragement from God, I invite you to come. That we can just together bask in his presence and in the knowledge that he's for us and not against us. He's for your marriage. He wants a people who belong to him. Let's, let's stand and sing again. If you'd like to come, this altar is open.